Let us pray. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always pleasing and acceptable to you. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I'm guessing you didn't think that you would be hearing from the Apocrypha this evening. Uh, has, has anybody ever read the Apocrypha? The Apocrypha, I'm just curious. One, two, so, all right. New experience. So uh, if you need to talk about it, you want to talk about that, please stick around for dinner and we can chat or we can get together sometime. It's, uh, it's very interesting. It's very fascinating. Um, but uh, if you're not used to it, um, it can be a little uh, unsettling. So I want to be sensitive to that. So if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to ask. Uh, well, I have been sort of on a mythology kick lately. Um, just before we went on vacation, I read the ancient epic of Gilgamesh, which I think is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, uh, ancient writing that we have, at least in poetic form. Uh, and then after that, I went to C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, which is a retelling of the myth of Cupid and Psyche, which is a fascinating read, the second time reading through that. And I sort of have this little paperback that's kind of a, a companion to mythology, you know. You can kind of like flip through and go, okay, who are these gods and who are these people and what is this history? So it's been very, very helpful. But what I'm most interested in is what these stories are saying. And I'm interested in the origin of these stories and probably most importantly, the way that these stories compare to the biblical narrative. And as much as they are different from each other, one thing is consistent in all mythologies, or the, the one thing that is consistent in all mythologies, is that you have these two categories. You have mortal beings and immortal beings. So the mortal beings are like us, right? And then the immortal beings are divine, so we have human and divine. Those of us who are subject to corruption and death and those who are not. And even in our modern secular world, we still have these categories. Either we see ourselves as mortal. We drink and eat and be merry because when death comes, we just sort of cease to be alive. Or we see ourselves as divine that we have some kind of indefinite existence beyond our death. But one thing is certain, no matter how we see ourselves, death will come and there's much suffering before it does. Well, over the last several weeks, we have been immersed in Paul's exposition of the gospel in the book of Romans. And what Christ has done in his life and his death and his resurrection has eternal implications for us. And last week we saw that being baptized into Christ means that we are adopted into his family. We share in his inheritance of all things. And so far, Paul is sort of taking us up into the clouds, we might fully appreciate the power of God revealed in the gospel to all those who believe. But in my sermons, 
I've been trying to acknowledge that the faith by which we live is often at odds with the experience that we live on earth. And in this evening's text, Paul himself takes some time to acknowledge the same. It's as if he is anticipating at this point in his gospel or in, his, uh, in this letter, the question that we are eventually bound to ask. What difference does the gospel make when there's so much suffering in the world? What difference does the gospel make when there's so much suffering in the world? His answer is that in the gospel, and this is a strange answer, all of creation has the hope of glory. Last week, we saw that the Christian has received the Spirit of God by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And we had said that our old life enslaved to sin is incompatible to the new life that we have in Christ, which is animated by his Holy Spirit. So it is this Spirit that we now have. It is by this spirit that we, we can now put to death the deeds of the body, which was Paul's point last week. And I mentioned that I saw no other way to do this than by following Jesus's example of self-denial and sharing in his sufferings. Now, that passage ended in eight, chapter 8, verse 17, by saying that if we are children of God, then we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So tonight, our passage continues that very thought. So let's begin by looking at verse 18. If you want to follow along in your bulletin, Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us or to us, as uh, the ESV says. So packed into this verse is a kind of thesis statement for the entire passage tonight. St. Paul continues to comment on both suffering and glory. If you go back through, you see these words come up over and over again, suffering and glory. As we saw in verse 18, there is a future glorification in store for those who suffer with Christ. Glory, then, is something that we hope for. And suffering, on the other hand, is something that surrounds us every day. So I just want to point out here that Paul is acknowledging that there is a vast chasm between the fulfillment of the promises of the gospel and our everyday experience. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever notice that? Well, also packed into this passage is another promise. The earthly sufferings we witness and experience is much less significant than the glory that is promised. The earthly sufferings we witness and experience, the early suffering we witness and experience is much less significant than the glory that is promised. Now, how could this possibly be the case? Well, look at the next verse, verse 19, for the creation 
The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So we'll kind of start at the end of that verse and kind of work our way backwards. The revealing of the sons of God. What is Paul talking about? Remember last week that the indwelling Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption. And by receiving God's spirit, we have joined a new family. We are now God's sons and daughters. We also spent some time thinking about the inconsistencies between our new identity in Christ and our old identity, that identity that was struggling with sin or enslaved to sin. We may be new creations now, but we often return to the old life that we had left behind. Our discipleship is a lifetime of putting to death the deeds of the body by the Holy Spirit. So while we continue to struggle, we aren't always revealed to be who we truly are. Sometimes we're revealed to be the opposite of who we truly are. But there is an eager longing for us to be revealed for who we truly are. I know that's confusing. We are often not revealed to be who we truly are, but what we long for is to be revealed for who we truly are. Maybe that's putting it a little bit better. So can you imagine... Can you imagine being completely consistent with what God has called you to be, to who God has created you to be, to be fully faithful and to be fully just and to be completely whole? And you can imagine the impact that that has, that that revelation would have on the world around us. And this is what Paul is talking about when he's talking about the glory being revealed to us or in us, I think would be a better translation. The glory revealed in us. But as much as you and I might long for that, St. Paul tells us that the entire creation is longing for that. Why? Well, look at verses 20 and 21. Paul says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Well, here I must refer back to a few sermons ago. The logic back in chapter 5, I don't expect you to remember all of that, but maybe this will jog your memory. The logic of chapter 5 is that we are all born into Adam. So Adam is our representative. That's our natural state. So what could be said of Adam could also be said of us. That we're born corrupt with a proclivity to always rebel against the Lord. By contrast, those who are in Christ have died with him and been raised to new life. So what could be said of Jesus can now be said of us. That is, that we are justified, we are declared righteous, and we're being renewed, we're being made righteous day by day. 
in order that we might resemble our new representative, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Why this is important is because back in the beginning, if you remember the the Genesis account, back in the beginning, the earth and all that is therein was given to mankind to steward. And through the corruption of sin, not only did Adam and Eve fall into death and humanity, but so did creation. So did the stewardship. The stewardship itself became corrupted and affects the creation. So through the corruption of sin, the stewardship has also been corrupted. But the good news is that in Jesus Christ, humanity has been redeemed. It's now possible for creation itself to also be set free from bondage to corruption. Now, there's a little question about the subject that who subjected creation to futility. Is Paul saying that Adam subjected creation to futility or is he saying that God subjected creation to futility? If you have a Bible, you might notice, because some Bibles do capitalize the him and the phrase, him who subjected it, which is, which is most likely the, which is the most likely option because the him here subjected creation how? In hope. So it's, it makes little sense that Adam subjected creation to futility and hope. It's more likely that Paul is saying that God is the one who subjected creation to futility by subjecting creation to the stewardship of mankind. But whatever the case, Paul is emphasizing hope here. The corruption was never going to have the final word. Remember, back in Genesis 3, that great corrupter's head, Satan, would be crushed by the seed of the woman. There has always been hope. Here, Paul says that the hope of all plant life, all of creation, all animal life, the entire atmosphere, every river and lake and ocean, every mountain and valley, the hope of all of creation is the freedom of the children of God. So creation, according to Paul, doesn't hope for less carbon emissions or fewer cows, or less people, or even electric cars. The hope of all creation is the freedom of human beings. Now, before you go out and tweet that Father Ben has some radical anti-environmental manifesto hidden in his sermons, just want you to know that I believe that creation care is vitally important to God. I think this is Paul's point. My only point here is that creation does not exist for itself. Creation does not exist for itself. There's an intrinsic relationship between humanity and creation. So if carbon emissions are harmful to the environment, by all means, we reduce them. But the point is that the healthiest environment that we could imagine would be tragic apart from the redemption of mankind. Because the only way for creation to be set in proper order is for it to once again flourish under the care of its rightful stewards, you and I, human beings. 
And so as capable as we are of caring for creation, we can only do so as pre-glorified men and women. But what the entire creation longs for is fully glorified, fully redeemed, and a free humanity. Free in what sense? Well, freedom from the enslavement to sin and death, as Paul mentioned last week. And this is why every human being also longs for this as well. Look in verse 22. For we know that the creation, the whole creation, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Groaning is a longing for the end of suffering. Creation longs for an end to its suffering. We see in the suffering of our animals that there is a sad injustice in the world. Paul says that the creation is groaning like a woman in labor. Later, he says that we groan inwardly. Now, there is nothing inward about the groans of a woman in labor. Trust me, I've witnessed it several times without epidurals. The whole process is excruciating. But every groan anticipates the end of the matter, which is hopefully, but not always, a healthy baby. And the point is, no one groans assuming that the pain will be eternal, going on and on and on. We groan in hope and anticipation for an end. The creation awaits something that has been promised by God in the gospel But if this is the case for creation, how much more will it be for the stewards of creation? Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. I started out speaking about myths. So here, there are two myths that I think that we need to sort of point out and take a look at. The first one is, even those of us with the Spirit of God groan. Even those of us with the Spirit of God groan. Okay? The second myth, these are addressing these myths. These aren't exactly the myths. The second is the end of our suffering is the redemption of our body. These are the two, uh, these aren't, aren't the myths. Let me get to the myths. For the first myth is out there, there are many who believe, and I think many probably in this room, that Christians don't suffer like the rest of the world. Now, on one hand, that's true. Paul even tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4 that We do not mourn as those who have no hope. So in a sense, it's true. We don't quite mourn or suffer like the world mourns or suffers. There's something a little bit different. But there is a kind of false Christian piety that assumes that any sort of mourning or depression or despondency is unbecoming of the Christian. Friends, that is a lie. It is a lie. Here, Paul says that even those who have the first fruits of the Spirit 
grown inwardly. Your mourning and your suffering will often be just as severe as anyone else's in the world. And the difference, as Paul has pointed out in 1 Thessalonians, is hope. However faint it might be, it is a dual testimony between God's spirit and ours that we are immortal beings. That is, we do not simply cease to exist after death, but that eternity has been set in the hearts of men by God himself. And though we may fall asleep, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, our hope is in what? Our bodily resurrection, just like Jesus's. And this brings us to the second myth, which is that we are destined for a bodiless eternity in heaven. Notice that St. Paul says that we eagerly await the redemption of what? Our bodies. This is the, the completion of our adoption, according to Paul. In one sense, we have already been adopted. He said that. We belong to God's family. Yet because our groaning, we know that there is more to come. Remember, all that is Christ is ours which includes our own bodily resurrection from the dead, just as he rose from the dead. So forget the bodiless eternity of your nightmares. You have a perfected and glorified body waiting for you, just as Jesus did. Well, friends, there are many benefits to assuming that we are entirely mortal, that there's no spark of eternity in us. There is no moral accountability, if that's the case, beyond this life. No reason to deny ourselves the pleasure this life has to offer us. But there's also no hope. All of your groaning is like suffering through the pains of childbirth with neither relief from labor nor a child to hold. Just pointless suffering and futility. On the other hand, If Christ has died and risen from the dead, we have been baptized into him and we indeed have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. If we have been grafted into his family and adopted as sons and daughters, then we have hope even in the midst of suffering and of loss and of grief. If you have ever wondered what your personal salvation and faith in Jesus has to do with the suffering of humanity and the entire creation, or if you wonder how your suffering could possibly compare to the suffering of others, listen to the promise here. We may have to wait, and our adoption may may be a done deal, but this will end with the redemption of our entire being, including our bodies. So what does your redemption have to do with the hope of creation? Friends, your redemption is the hope of all creation. And St. Paul says in verse 24, for it is this hope we are saved. The sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. We don't see it because if we did, we would not be hope. It would not be hope. He continues in verse 24, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So whatever it is that might be piling up on you this evening, whatever keeps you up at night, whatever anxieties you might have, whatever tears you shed or griefs you carry, Christ is not unfamiliar with any of them. The Christian life you are living is not the full story. We may feel mortal in this life, but Paul says that the mortal has put on immortality. This is the good news of the gospel. You, sons and daughters of God, you, brothers and sisters in Christ. And as you leave this place and go back out into the world, remember that your redemption, our redemption, is the hope of all creation. And though we may eagerly and patiently wait for its completion in Christ, it is a done deal. And let this be an encouragement to be encouraged by the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for the resurrection of your Son and all that that means for us. Lord, we desire to see your entire creation put back into order, and we don't want to hinder that, but to aid in it. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would have your way with us. We ask, Lord, that you would break down all of the barriers that keep us from co-laboring with you. So that our true identity might be revealed. And in seeing us, others see you. And give us patience Give us long suffering as we go through this life and as we minister to those who are suffering greatly. And as we tell our children who ask, why is there so much evil in the world? Would you give us the hope that we would be led by hope and characterized by this hope? That this hope would lead to joy, even in the midst of suffering and waiting for the redemption, for the entire redemption of our bodies, which is the hope of all creation. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.